one week season, fam. We are past week one. We are in week two, nearing the end of week two. This has been the craziest couple months for me, uh, as you've probably noticed. I'm pretty excited. Week two, after week two, things slow down. I get my normal NFL rhythm. Uh, had a good week one, and really excited about this week. Um, I think I have most things in place. I'm recording this late Friday night from a hotel room in Las Vegas. Uh, I am here to speak at the DFS education event that is taking place this weekend. And flying back at 6 a.m. on Sunday so that I can be at my desk when I'm shooting off uh, the Sunday morning email to you guys and keep an eye on late news from my normal environment. So uh, crazy weekend this weekend, but uh, after this, things get down to normal. Pretty excited. Uh, we are going to dig into some questions about some about the slate, some about strategy. Um, some that, you know, go to both of those categories. Uh, the first one comes from Daniel Gates, Silver Fox 4, and this was actually asked last week, but we didn't get to it. And it's a good question to get to, and that's, ever concerned about leaving too much salary on the table? Yes and no. Yes, for two reasons. One, the same reason as everybody else. It just feels so weird it feels wrong. So I don't do it as often as you should. From a strategy perspective, it would make sense to leave five or 600 off the table just because nobody else is doing it. So you have such a different roster construction. Uh, the other reason I don't do it that often is because most of my play is on DraftKings and pricing is usually very good on DraftKings. So a lot of times leaving 400, 500 on the table is giving you a suboptimal team. This is less true in MLB. I don't want to speak to NBA because I, I've never been an expert in that sport and I've only played about 30 or 40 NBA slates in my life. MLB with uh, the fact that a team, an entire team can go off for 10, 11, 12 runs and the stack all works together. That's a situation where it can make sense. You can stack a cheap team and just because they're cheap doesn't preclude them from having a random big game. In football, it's a little bit different because that salary typically means more. On FanDuel, I would feel more comfortable with it. Um, and then the other side of that is that, yeah, I do do it sometimes just because of the strategy uh, aspect. So I think it makes sense, uh, but those are the reasons why I don't do it as often as maybe I should. Uh, final note on that, Levitan did some cool research over the summer about millionaire maker winning teams and the trends that those teams showed. And one of them that he found was very few winning teams left more than 300 on the table. I think the number was, and it was by percentage of like what percentage of teams left more than 400 on the table. And then what percentage won the million maker compared to the teams that didn't do that. Um, so in other words, it, it is, proven to be somewhat suboptimal on DraftKings at least. Uh, but I do still think that there are times that it makes sense to do that. All right, John Langer asked, uh, I seem to pick the right player group that exceeds ceiling. I just don't know how to put them all in the same lineup. 
how can I improve this when entering only a few lineups for GPPs? My cash lineups do well. I think that the biggest thing here is, is typically tends to be, and it's different obviously for every week, for every person. And one thing that's interesting to note is that personality really does play a big role in DFS as far as the type of play that you should take on, how you should approach things. Um, if I tried to play with a hundred entries and use some perfect mass multi-entry strategy, it, it would be a completely suboptimal use of the way my works and my personality. Uh, but I do think that generally speaking, getting in the habit of getting down to one favorite team, one optimized team does create a much sharper approach. So even if you're mass entering, obviously, John, this doesn't apply to you, but even if you're mass entering, I think that the goal should be to get down to one team and then branch out from there. So what I'll do during the week when I'm building teams and messing around with things is I'll try something with a roster and try to get one that I really like. And then I'll take that roster and make a few changes. So I'll say, how can, for example, this week, a team with Melvin Gordon on it as my highest priced running back. I might say, how can I get up to Todd Gurley? What would that cause me to sacrifice elsewhere? Is there, is there a way for me to improve this team further? I'll try different things, trying to get down to one optimized team. Uh, but it'll start from different branches. So it'll be a team with Matt Ryan as my quarterback and Julio Jones as a wide receiver. Uh, and then another team that'll start with Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins and then you move things around from there to get a feel for uh, what your favorite team is. If you are dealing with a player pool that tends to do well, but your rosters aren't performing as well, uh, there's a few things that come to mind. One is oftentimes just overthinking things. And another is fear of missing out on a good play. And so what ends up happening is, a, you end up cutting down to three or four teams instead of trying to get down to one. And then you spread your favorite plays out too thin. Um, I think the toughest thing can be getting in the habit of just trusting yourself and taking what you know is the best roster you built um, or the best players. So sometimes that means sacrificing a player you really like for a better overall roster. Uh, so, for example, this week, with going back to the Melvin Gordon, Todd Gurley thing, uh, currently, again, it's Friday night, but currently it looks like I will be using Melvin Gordon. I like Todd Gurley more, but what I can do with the overall roster is better with Melvin Gordon in there. And so I have to let go of this player I really like in Gurley in order to fit more good players onto a team than I could otherwise. Uh, so I think that that's the best thing is to get in the habit of trying to get down to that one best team and know that there's going to be some weeks that go wrong because of that. Also know that you can still put in three or four teams if you're trying to get down to one best team. Uh, you can take those other versions that you also like and put them in, but that practice, that discipline of trying to get down to one team really can help you to pull out who the true best plays are um, from your good player pool and feel good when you go into the weekend. And when you come out of it, even if it's a, a bad weekend, like for example, right now, the team that I plan to use if the, if the weekend started right now 
I feel there's an 80% chance that it's going to be a winning team. Uh, based on the numbers, based on the math that I can extrapolate from the matchups and uh, expected uh, opportunity and talent and all these different things, um, you know, and then I have what I think is the floor for this roster. I have what I think is the ceiling. And realistically on this week, I think this roster would be profitable 80% of the time. So if I can go into Sunday feeling that way, then even if it ends up not being a good roster, or I should say, even if it ends up not making money this week, I come out of Sunday feeling good because I know I built a good roster. So that's really what I try to get down to is um, an understanding that, look, you're not going to win every weekend, but if you put in supremely above optimal rosters over and over again, you're going to win most weekends. And, and that's really the key is being able to let go of some of these guys you like or love even to try to create the best overall roster. Hopefully that helps. I know that's probably the biggest challenge in like the final steps of DFS. Uh, obviously, if you're not creating a player pool, you're a couple steps behind. But if you're creating a player pool and saying, look, these are the good plays in my mind. And then you're pulling from that player pool and the player pool is good, but your rosters end up not being good. Um, that's frustrating. And it's like one of the last things to really figure out uh, before profit becomes more consistent. And I think that that's one of the, there are a couple of the big keys for figuring it out. All right. This is an awesome follow-up question to that one. Uh, I struggle with two things, picking the right contests, uh, which I have learned to do more single entry in cash and narrowing that lineup to one or two. I seem to cash more in GPPs, but not a lot of money. And my GPP lineups usually score more than what I perceive to be my cash lineups. So the backward on this, the thing about when you're outscoring your cash lineup, I mean, that's optimally what's going to happen with a GPP lineup. Um, you would prefer for your GPP lineup where you're targeting more upside to outscore your cash lineup. Uh, with that said, the reason I switched over to a one lineup approach was I realized early on that my favorite roster outscored all my other rosters most weeks. I mean, last week, my main roster scored 218 and my second best roster out of like 70 that I built throughout the week, my second best roster scored like 180. So uh, for me, Typically, my favorite roster is my highest scoring or one of my five or six highest scoring. And then that's what I put into cash games. I think where people end up getting weaker scores in cash games, and this is really, I think, the bigger focal point here is, and I talk about this a lot, but it's, it's always worth repeating, is people play cash to not lose. It's like they're John Fox coaching the Bears and just hoping to not get embarrassed that's how John Fox would coach games. He would slow down the clock when he was behind and I'm getting off on a tangent because it upset me so much, but, uh, and that's what a lot of DFS players do in cash games is they don't try to win. They, they try to just stick with the field. They try to figure out where the ownership is going and grab that. What ends up happening is you have some of these weekends where you barely finish inside the money. Then you have these other weekends when you finish, you know, top 46% cash in a double up and you finish 47th or 48%. And it's so frustrating, especially if you put a lot of money into double ups as I think that you should. Um, So for me, I try to play double ups 
and 50-50s and head-to-heads to build a roster that has actual upside, build a roster that can win. And so I tend to finish in the top 25% on winning weekends and in the bottom 25% on losing weekends. But with that approach, I have more winning weekends than the people who are just playing to not lose. Um, so that's the first part of that is I, I do want to encourage everybody to really think about upside in, in cash games. Obviously, we're looking for floor and upside. Uh, but a lot of people will just take these floor plays and be like, okay, this guy is good for 10 points at, at 3,500 or whatever the case is. And they end up missing out on the ceiling that they should be getting. So that if one player fails, uh, these other players on their team can pick up the slack. Um, the narrowing down to one or two rosters goes back to the last discussion. And then the final thing about uh, picking contests, uh, I am not an expert on this because I tend to, I actually just go through and, you know, enter every contest in the lobby outside of, uh, I don't play qualifiers anymore because uh, traveling during football season is not a good idea. Uh, especially traveling for an event where you're supposed to be at things. Uh, I say that as I'm here in Vegas. Um, but yeah, I prefer to be in my office when I can. Also, qualifiers can be a real bankroll drain. Uh, but outside of qualifiers, I enter everything. So I don't pretend to be an expert on picking which contests to play uh, if you don't have the ability to just enter everything. But uh, if you are trying to maximize profit, the best thing, and, and you said this in your tweet, uh, you know, that I've mentioned several times on the site, is single entry tournaments, small field tournaments. Uh, that was how I built my bankroll in 2015. Was that the year I started playing? 2015 in baseball was playing $100 small field contests. And uh, it's so much easier, you know, you're not going to get one of these 100K wins, but it's so much easier to get that, turn 100 bucks into 2K or into 4K. And, you know, now you've bought yourself 40 extra entries into this tournament uh, where, again, you can, uh, in those next 40 entries, you're going to hit for 4K again because you're playing well, you're putting together good teams. So I think that that's the key is, um, is finding these contests that allow you to actually build bankroll. Uh, which is cash games, small field tournaments, single entry tournaments. And you can take this superior information that you have. Like, look, if you're listening to this podcast, this is not entertaining. You know, uh, I'm not that kind of guy. Um, hopefully it's interesting. Obviously it's informative. Um, so the fact that you're sitting here on a Saturday or Sunday listening to this podcast, you're willing to put in the work and, and get good at this. So, if that's the case, your focus should be on building bankroll, not just trying to win the lottery with one of these, um, you know, tournaments with 200,000 entries and you've got to finish first place. Obviously I'm talking about the millionaire maker, which sure it's fun to play, but you're here trying to get better focus on building bankroll. And, and you can do that every season with cash games, small field tourneys, single entry tourneys. Um, and honestly, there will be a number of you this season. If, if you start doing that, there will be a number of you this season that are playing in the 1K buy-in by the end of the year if you're maybe playing $100 buy-ins right now because you're going to hit for one of these bigger wins uh, possibly more than once and then your bankroll is bigger and you just apply the same strategies to higher dollar stuff of trying to build the best team. 
And it's not as much about, um, okay, what's the ownership on this guy and this guy, but it's like, who are the best players when I'm thinking for myself? Some weeks are going to be on more chalk than others. Um, even on those weeks for me, like my roster construction approach is so different from anyone else's that I've still had winning weekends where everybody on my roster is over 15% owned or over 12% owned. And I've, I've had huge weekends like that because in these smaller field tournaments, you still have the best team and it's different because you're thinking for yourself and putting things together in a different way. Uh, so I think that that's really the key is try to build bankroll in smaller field stuff. It doesn't matter exactly what it is. Uh, it's just getting those teams in there. If you're playing with a hundred bucks, I would probably say spread it out into a $30 single entry and a $9 small field tournament and so on. So that if you have a huge weekend, you maximize your ROI over just going hundred bucks and a hundred dollar buy-in. Um, if you're playing two, three, 400, then obviously, again, you just keep swelling what you're playing in and um, build for the most expensive tournament you're playing in is the last thing I would say on that. So for me, I always think about what's now the 2120 tournament on DraftKings. So when I build, I build thinking what could win that tournament? What are the best plays? What's the best way to get the, the maximum amount of upside while still protecting my floor as much as possible? And then I take that team and I enter it into all the other small field and single entry tournaments. So if you're playing with 300 a weekend and the $100 is the highest dollar one you're entering, think about that when you're building rosters and when you're asking yourself questions about players and that'll help you to really maximize the uh, overall upside you're able to hit with the roster. And then when you enter it into everything else, you can maximize your ROI on that weekend. Craig C asked, Where's the best place to review the lineups of top DFS players in order to study the lineup? Uh, Craig, I'm assuming you're asking that because I talk or I've talked in a few places. Maybe you haven't. And you've just thought of this on your own, which is also awesome. Uh, I've talked in a few places about that was how I started out back in 2000. I actually started playing in 2014, started playing seriously in 2015. So back then there were not as many resources uh, Rotor Grinder still had some great stuff, but not nearly what it has today. Uh, there were not these other sites. There were not sites like Fantasy Labs that had all these analytics tools. Uh, there just wasn't great information out there like there is now, especially on the strategy side of things. And so I would play, uh, you know, in these $100 tournaments, I would pay attention to who was winning consistently. A lot of them are guys who are still around. Bird Wings, Mr. Tuttle, Notorious, uh, Dinkmeyer. Pay attention to who is winning uh, CSU Ram and then try to break down their roster to see how they had put it together and what they were looking for. Uh, that was huge for me because, uh, you know, I talk about each DFS slate being a puzzle. As you start seeing the ways that different people are approaching putting that puzzle together, uh, as I'm saying this, I'm also thinking about it. it really is amazing how many of these same DFS players are still playing. Um, as in it wasn't fluky years ago, Bales is another one, Deepai Majeep is another one, STL Cards is another one. Really cool, um, you know, when we talk about this being a skill game to see how many of these people are still making money. Um, and some of these guys are content providers, they make some money that way as well, but um, most people don't make that much from the content provider side. Uh, and then there are guys like uh, Deepai Majeep and a few others that I mentioned uh, who don't 
provide content and just play DFS or DFS and other things and make money. Um, so again, just keep that in mind that this really is something you can make money at. I don't make as much playing as some of these other guys because um, I play six months or I play four months a year now. I play NFL only. Um, and NBA was never a strong suit for me. It is not my sport. Um, but still, you know, I'm in that group of guys who every year you go in and you just know that you're making money that season. So it's important to recognize that there are people who have been doing this at a high level for, you know, five years and making money consistently. And so if you're trying to get better and you're trying to figure out what it takes, uh, keep in mind that that is like seriously something that happens. This is something that people do is they just play DFS. So in trying to get to that level, um, there's, you know, there's two sides. It's like there's the Sawhill side or the Osimo side where you're putting in 100, 150 lineups and your brain works in a certain way where you're able to see how to piece together. Uh, Eric Crane's another guy. You're able to see how to piece together all these different lineups in such a way that you're giving yourself a clear shot at the top. Uh, because that side is pretty sexy, you know, you see these guys at the top of uh, the Roto-Grinders rankings and you see these guys constantly winning big money. You don't see the nights where they lose 40 or 50 grand in one night, obviously. But uh, because of that, everybody kind of thinks that that's the way that they have to go. And even if you're not going to go straight single entry, you know, the other, if you're not equipped either with bankroll or with the type of mind that works well for this of just building 150 lineups um, and knowing how to do that properly, then really what you should be focusing on is building one great lineup each week. And again, that can branch out into 10 entries or 12 entries um, with say maybe, um, you know, one tree and three branches off of it. And then another tree and three branches off of it with a tree being like, a Matt Ryan to Julio Jones roster and you build it from the bottom up and make it as good as you can. And then you have three branches that are like different takes on that roster. And then you can do that with a Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins roster. Then you could do that, go off the board with a Jared Goff and Brandon Cooks roster. Um, these are just ideas of how to build things, not saying this is how you have to do it or necessarily how I do it each week. But, um, but you can still enter more than one roster. But the point is you need to learn how to get down to this one really good roster. So the difference in studying these 150 entry guys and these, uh, they're not one roster guys, but these guys who play uh, at high stakes and are comfortable putting in one roster and not putting in 150 in other places. Uh, the benefit of studying these guys is that you can really learn how they put together what, what is their favorite roster when you look at them in single entry tourneys and high dollar tourneys. So the guys that I would pay attention to, I'm going to rattle off some names. Um, Cal Spears, Cubs fan 333, uh, draft sheet, CSU Ram, beep on a Jeep, uh, Jonathan Bales, Brandon Adams. And I'm missing some guys, so I don't want to offend anybody if, if anyone's listening to this. There are, there are others. Those are the guys who are coming to mind off the top of my head. Um, these are guys who consistently win 
at high dollar tournaments or in qualifiers or things where you have to beat a smaller field. And the rosters that they build in these smaller field tournaments are awesome. Um, so I would encourage you to recognize that these are winning players and even on their losing weeks, you should be looking at their rosters to break down the thought process. Same thing that how, when I break down my roster at the top of the NFL edge, um, I'll go through and I'll find the mistakes I made, but just because a guy had a bad score doesn't mean I chalk him up as a mistake. And so being able to go through these rosters of really good players and see what went right or what went wrong on their rosters and then assess what was a correct play, what was a mistake, what was the thought process that they were thinking through when they made that team, you can really learn a lot. Uh, the way to do that on DraftKings, there's a place to just click on all live contests. It's on the top right of the desktop. Uh, I think it says live contest is all it says. You click on it and it just brings up every contest that's going on right then. And typically you can find the high dollar stuff at the top. Uh, go in there every week. I mean, I still do that and try to learn from what other people are doing. It's similar to the NFL in the way that the way to win changes based on what different teams are doing in the NFL. Uh, the way to win in DFS changes based on what the NFL teams are doing. And so different people figure that out at different speeds. And so as you pay attention to these rosters, you can actually start picking up things before they become trends of things that other people are noticing that you might not have noticed. Um, so again, go to the live contests, um, find the high dollar tournament and look through some of these guys who consistently win um, 30 minutes of doing that each week. You learn a lot, even just, by osmosis, uh, as my geometry teacher, Mr. Page, would have said. Um, but yeah, that is a, a big thing to do. Sorry, I don't know how to find that on FanDuel. I think that the best uh, bet might be, I think Roto Grinders posts the links in the forum each week after games kick off, because I don't think FanDuel has uh, just a place on the site to see that. All right, cool data-related question from Zandamir. Uh, we often hear about a quarterback in a blowout not being expected to throw much, thus lowered point expectations. Is that true? What's the data say? There have been some – I wish I could credit this to someone. I don't remember who did it, so I don't want to say a random name. But um, one of these sharp guys did some research on this this last summer and essentially found that quarterbacks who are favored tend to – significantly outscore quarterbacks who are underdogs. And so people talk about volume getting lower once a team blows out the opponent. The reality is that if the team blows out an opponent, the quarterback probably had a really good game. Uh, as with everything, there are nuances to that statement. That doesn't apply to every situation. For example, the Rams, when the Rams score touchdowns, it doesn't go through Jared Goff as much as it goes through Todd Gurley. Sometimes that's through the air, sometimes on the ground. If the Rams score 35 points, that doesn't guarantee that Goff had a big game. If the Packers score 35 points, Aaron Rodgers had a big game. Aaron Rodgers is the engine in the red zone. If the Panthers scored 35 points, Cam Newton had a big game. So a 35 to 13 score, a blowout win, actually helps the favored quarterback. The underdog can pick up points in garbage time, but realistically, if that team is scoring 
14 points or 20 points or whatever it is, you're getting only two touchdowns. Uh, that quarterback is not going to put up the points that the winning quarterback put up. Uh, so it's an interesting shift in thinking from what people just assume and say without it being backed up by the research. All right, Damian Scott, you got a good question here. Uh, with more and more people paying attention to NFL line movements to help gain an edge in DFS, could you use player prop bets for the week? The same way to try and gauge what sharp people think certain players' stats could fall. Um, in theory, you would be able to, but the prop bets don't get posted until Sunday morning. Uh, and there is a limit on what can be bet on a single prop bet. I believe it's 500 um, in Vegas, but I could be wrong on that. But essentially, prop bets are more to lure people in and get them to bet money. Um, and the people who have the money to and the time you know, the actual sharps to hammer this stuff, they're not wanting to place bets that get capped at 500. Um, so it's not a place where they focus a ton. Uh, so because of that, it's been maybe not proven, but at least assumed and talked about and talked about by really sharp guys. Uh, I believe I've heard Levitan and CSU talk about this, uh, maybe Bales, guys who pay attention and aren't just pulling stuff out of thin air, uh, that essentially prop bets are pretty inefficient. Um, as in, you know, we used to think, I think it was even before I started playing DFS, people kind of thought, okay, we can use prop bets as projections the same way we use Vegas implied totals. So if a player is pegged with, you know, a, a prop bet of five and a half catches and 70 yards, we can kind of make that their projection. Uh, what we come to realize is that, again, those lines are pretty inefficient. Uh, there's a guy uh, who works with Derek Cardi. Um, Derek Fischenbach, who does a lot of the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff for Cardi. And Fischenbach's made a bunch of money on prop bets. Um, just, you know, taking the, the limit and realizing that they're inefficient. Uh, a good example was week one, Nelson Aguilar opened at like over-under of four and a half catches. And, you know, he was literally their offense. Like that, we knew going in that that was the only person that they would be throwing to. He had 10 targets in the game, eight catches, I believe. Um, so yeah, prop bets are just not really a place where uh, we can actually lean for reliable information. Typically we know more than, uh, you know, what's being put out for the prop bet. And if you wanted to, and if you were in Vegas, you could hammer prop bets over time and make good money doing it. Uh, because again, not all prop bets are inefficient, but each week you can find five, six, seven of them that are not great. And because of that, you know, it's just a little dangerous to rely on them and you don't have the time to watch them move the way you do with uh, the against the spread lines. All right, Scott Martire. I probably butchered that, Scott. Um, we answered the first part of this, but there's a second part I want to get to. Um, would love to understand more about how to choose the best contest to enter. Uh, I think that we we covered that pretty well. Again, just single entry, small field stuff. Focus on building bankroll, play cash games, double ups, head to heads, um, and really get in there each week and give yourself a chance to profit um, most weeks. Um, which a note on that, I had a uh, it was 2016, uh, I believe it was maybe 2015 that I went 
I don't know where I was because my room service showed up. Um, but yeah, so talking about, um, oh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I was right there talking about, I had a year and I, and I realized I have the years all wrong. I started playing seriously in 2014. I didn't realize I've been doing this for so long. Um, so yeah, 2013 was when I was playing casually. And then 2014 was when I started actually playing. So it was 2015. I went, I had 14 profitable weekends out of the 17 weekends. And again, it's just taking this approach of, uh, you know, overplaying cash games, putting more, more than 50% of your bankroll in cash games so that if you have a good cash game weekend, you're profiting. And then focusing on single entry tourneys. Um, and there are actually going to be weeks too where you don't profit in cash games, uh, but something that you hit on in a small field tourney makes you back enough money that you still end up at profit on the week. Um, so focusing on those is the best way to um, you know, choose contests. Um, scouting other people in attorney or cash games to gain an additional edge. I'm assuming you mean people putting in poor teams and then hunting them down for head-to-heads. Um, this, if I'm misconstruing your question, I apologize, uh, but I do think this is an interesting topic about you know finding people who are just putting in bad teams and saying, let me just play this person. Um, I think what you find is it's hard to get people to to accept a head-to-head invite. Maybe they don't accept from me because they recognize my name, but realistically, like there's a couple hundred thousand people who play DFS and I have 20,000 Twitter followers, you know, like not, there's 90% of the field has no idea who I am. And frequently if I send out a head-to-head invite, it doesn't get accepted. I mean, I'd say well over 90% of the time. So, um, I think it's an inefficient use of time, but it is a good idea if you can find somebody who's just giving away money to try to play against that person. All right, dude, you're going to have to tell me on Twitter how to pronounce your uh, name because you and I chat all the time, but it's Rekt, R-E-K-Y-T. All right, homie, let me know. Uh, possible cheat code in play this week with Gordon and Eckler. Um, I would say absolutely not just because there is better value and Eckler is like his role is so not guaranteed. So the floor that you take on to potentially get uh, 20 points from Eckler, 15 to 20 points is just not worth it to me. Um, Maybe I'm underestimating how secure his role is. Maybe he is going to get six catches and a couple carries every game, in which case, yeah, they can be putting together for sure. Um, but still, on a week like this, I, I think that with James White, uh, if Rex Burkhead is out, James White obviously is going to get a ton of receptions. Tevin Coleman's a little more expensive. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that there's value here that we don't have to – um, take on something that's quite that thin. That would be my perspective on that one. All right, Chris Sentef, who I've been hanging out with on Twitter for years, it feels like. Uh, how do you weigh the safety and upside with going three running backs uh, and playing mid-priced slot guys at wide receiver who project well and who have talent? Or going tight end in the flex and getting some premier wide receiver options. So. 
this is broken down into two conversations. One is this week and one is big picture or the other is big picture this week. Uh, this week I don't like it because Antonio Brown, I just think like a bad, I'll be disappointed if he gets 20 points or I'll knock that down to 17, but I'll be disappointed if he gets 17 points and uh, I won't be surprised if he gets 35 to 40. And so I just think, I, I think he's the best play on the slate, like regardless of position. And um, I think that Connor is the most underpriced player on the slate. So again, I said it on the uh, podcast with Levitan, but that's where I'm starting is with those two guys. Um, but in a bigger picture perspective, the idea of taking, you know, running back is usually where we can get the most upside. Running back is usually where we have the best shot at these 30-point games. And so I, I kind of like the idea, and I haven't had awesome success with it, but I think it's just short sample size and variance because it makes a lot of sense to take the upside on these 30-point running backs and then to take these wide receivers who, you know, when you get down to these cheaper wide receivers, you usually have two options. You have the guys um, who can get you anywhere from, you know, four for 40 yards to like eight for 80, who are these just floor play, slot receivers, uh, underneath guys. Cooper Cup's a perfect example. Like let's say Cooper Cup were 4,500 this week instead of 5,500. Um, obviously, he's a, he's a premier example, but uh, yeah, these guys tend to be in the same range as the low floor, high ceiling guys. Um, and so in order to fit in the three awesome running backs on those weeks, you usually have to take some cheaper wide receivers. And your options come down to these kind of deep threat, low floor, high ceiling guys who could hit for 20 points or could go for three or four. Um, or these slot guys who will get you at least eight and could go for 16. What people overlook in this conversation is that those slot guys can also score touchdowns. You know, like Jarvis Landry was used in the red zone a lot last year. Cooper Cup is used in the red zone a lot. Again, those are higher priced guys, but uh, Jameson Crowder is usually under 5K. He gets some red zone work. So, yeah, I, I like the idea. I think it makes sense if you're taking that guaranteed upside on three top running backs. Um, again, if we're talking slate specific, you got to realize that every slate is different. So this week I don't like it as much, but I do think it makes a lot of sense. All right. Brad Benstead asked, um, what is meant by nailing down? I was talking about the uh, course that I have on the site, the DFS training course, playing NFL DFS for profit. Uh, what is meant by nailing down your top to bottom thoughts on each game? So I talk about nailing down your top to bottom thoughts, going through each game and nailing those down. Uh, what is it that you are looking for, looking at slash for in each game? So I, up until last year, and I, it only started last year because I began incorporating it into the NFL edge, the Vegas lines at the top. Up until last year, I didn't even look at Vegas lines as part of my research, which uh, I was always told was crazy, but I was actually more profitable doing that than I've been, you know, when Vegas lines get in my head. And so again, it, it's like taking a game and saying what is likeliest to happen um not what's like a crazy game script but like the starting point of what is likeliest to happen so one example i'm going to give you guys and this gives away some stuff about the roster i'm looking at right now but it's kind of implied in the nfl edge uh for this week is 
the Steelers offense. So we know that last week, I think the statistic I put was 93.8% of the Steelers offensive touches were from Connor, Juju, or Antonio Brown. Um, that was skewed a little bit by Justin Hunter catching only one of six targets, but still 85% of the work is going to go through these guys. This week they're playing a Chiefs defense that is possibly the worst defense in the league, at least a bottom five defense. Um, after getting embarrassed, honestly, last week against the Browns, they should not have tied the Browns. And coming back home where they play better, like it's such a smash spot. So I'm looking at this game and saying – the Steelers are going to score all these points. Um, where are these points going to come from? Well, then I need to start looking at, all right, if they're going to get all these points, they're going to get 400 yards. That's not a crazy projection. That's really a median projection for them this week. Uh, it would be like 100 rushing yards and 300 passing yards. Uh, add it all up, and like a low projection for these three players is 320 combined yards. Maybe you need to knock it down to 300 combined yards. A low projection for catches for them is 16, 17, 18. Um, a low projection for touchdowns for them is two. Um, when you start adding all of this up and thinking about how much guaranteed floor you have and then how much ceiling you have in this matchup, like it wouldn't be unrealistic for the Steelers to score 49 points. Um, that's within their range of outcomes. Not saying that's the likeliest scenario, but uh, that's in their range of outcomes. So, you take a game like this where there's so much good that can happen and then it's going to flow through so few players. Um, that's kind of the starting point is like, what's going to happen in this game? What's the likeliest thing? Well, the likeliest thing is the Steelers have a big game. All right. Is there a way that we can take advantage of that? Well, we know where the usage is going and then you can turn more to mathematics uh, away from the creativity of it and over to the math of it and just say like, what's a worst case scenario in this spot? And then on the flip side, what's the best case scenario uh, and kind of piece together a roster like that. So for me, like that's an anchor for me this week um, is I, obviously Antonio Brown and Connor, as I've said, but I'd like to get Juju in there as well. Um, just because you lock in so much, like a bad game from Juju is going to be 15 and then I'll, it'll be like eh, too bad. I paid 6,400 for him on DraftKings. Um, but a good game from him is 35. And if that happens, then Antonio Brown's only getting, 20 or 25 and so you basically expose yourself to all of these points and then when you're looking at other games like say a Dolphins and Jets game um, what is each coach going to try to do um, what is the way to beat this defense what is the way to attack like is one team going to slow things down is one team going to speed things up uh, what wide receiver are the Jets likeliest to try to get open um, what do they want to do with Sam Darnold right now? What does the matchup mean for him? Um, and that goes down to the micro level. Like, is the Jets pass or is the Dolphins pass rush strong enough to rattle Darnold? Um, is it strong enough to force underneath passes? What are the Dolphins likely to do uh, to try to stop Quincy and Nunwa? And maybe I underestimate my ability to do this because, again, I did, um, you know, played football and coached football and broke down a film. And so I have a background in this type of thinking um, and I've been, you know, fascinated with the sport since I was a kid. But honestly, like, I feel like I'm not oversimplifying things. I feel like 90% of people on the site can do this. Like you're ingesting all this information. Um, it's just beginning to understand 
what different coaches are good at, what different coaches are bad at, what different teams' tendencies are. And so you can look at a game and say, uh, what do I think is going to happen in this game? And, and I've been doing this for years, encouraging people to, um, you know, just throughout the week, when you're commuting or whatever, uh, try to think through some games. Just think about what are the Dolphins and Jets going to do? Like, how are they going to attack each other? And then if you're building 150 lineups, that's when you start saying, all right, what are some crazy game scripts here? Like you look at guys like, like Cubs fan 333 had some teams in the top 60 or 70 of the Millie maker last week with Ryan Fitzpatrick at quarterback. Um, did he go in saying, look, I think Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to have a great game. No, but when he, you know, I've talked before about his process is he reads the NFL edge two or three times each week. Uh, last week he listened to it five times at least. Uh, and then he watches the show with Adam and me. That's his whole process. Like this is literally the only research this guy does and consistently crushes. Right. So it was listening to the NFL edge, reading the NFL edge and thinking, look, we keep talking about this saints and uh, Buccaneers game, just being super high scoring on the Saints side. So then you start thinking, all right, what are some crazy scenarios for how this game could play out? we know that it's in Ryan Fitzpatrick's range of outcomes to put up a five touchdown game. He's done it before. Uh, he has the weapons. So like that's when you go off script and say what is less likely to happen, but is possible. So if you get into the 150 lineup area, you have to start thinking like that. Um, I don't do that type of play because that's not my strength of thinking. Uh, my strength of thinking is finding what's likeliest to happen. I'm very good at that and building a really good team out of that. And I think even if you're going to do the 150 lineup route, uh, which you can practice if you're a lower dollar player, you can practice it in the 25 cent tournament, you know, and, and try to get a feel for the best way to do that. Um, but if you're going to play DFS at all, I still think that the starting point is figuring out what's likely to happen in each game. Um, realistically, the NFL Edge helps you quite a bit with that. Um, I always encourage reading the NFL Edge and reading Silva's matchups column, which is free on Roto World, uh, just because I think that most weeks Silva and I are like 80 20. Uh, we overlap on 80% of stuff and disagree on 20%. So then you get a, another really highly qualified voice that is great at breaking down the games um, and telling you what, what he thinks is likely to happen. And, you know, that 20% is basically I get some players in my head without realizing it um, and just have a bias for or against a player and might get things wrong. Silva, same thing. There might be a player that uh, in his mind, you know, he's locked in on this guy as a good play. And then he does all the research to support that. Um, so I think we both do that every week. Um, and so being able to read both sides, you can kind of get a feel for uh, what you think on the week. So realistically, with the NFL edge uh, and with matchups, there a lot of that work is done for you. But uh, I think it's good practice to just learn how to do that on your own because eventually you're going to find these games where you see something that other people aren't seeing. I mean, that's how I built my bankroll is I wasn't writing stuff yet, right? So you're just having to trust that you know these things. It's not like um, like every once in a while I'll have a like a crazy idea and it's like, well, can I really pull the trigger on this? And then I think about like the amount of success that I've had when trusting myself 
and the fact that I do good research and that people read my stuff and listen to my stuff and it's like, okay, I know what I'm talking about. I can pull the trigger on this, right? It's harder when um, you're just you. And what I mean by that is like you're sitting at your house and doing your own research and coming up with some crazy thought that you're not hearing these people you respect come up with. It's hard to pull the trigger. Um, and I think that you have to get to that point and you're, you're going to be wrong sometimes. But so the year was 2014. That was like, for me, you know, I was just playing. I guess I'd started writing for Roto Grinders by football season. But in baseball season, you're just having to sit there and, and trust like, okay, I did my research and this is making sense to me. and I'm going to pull the trigger on it. So even with these resources here with the NFL edge and Silva's matchups column, I, I do think that it still makes, makes sense to think through each game and see what you can do um, to really kind of find out what you think is likely to happen and pay attention to those weeks when you think something different is going to happen than what everybody else is thinking. Uh, Dan Masterson, I have budgeted uh, for three $100 King of the Beach qualifier entries each week. DraftKings runs three of these 100-man qualifiers. Is it smarter to run all three in the same contest or throw one in each? Uh, I think it would vary. So for me, if I felt great about a roster, I would put it in each and try to take down all three because if you can get those three seats, uh, your chances of taking down first place or I guess the king of the beach, I think the next step is to win the trip to Atlantis, which is awesome, by the way. Um, or I don't know if they're doing it in Atlantis anymore, but wherever they're doing it, uh, those events are pretty cool. So essentially, if you have an optimized team that you really love, you can put it in each one, and hopefully you land all three and win three shots at it. Um, if you are less certain on a week, then I think that you put it into um, all into one. And when you think about the math on this, 17 weeks, well, you don't have 17 weeks until the actual contest, let's say it's 14 weeks. Um, that's 42 out of a hundred entries that you're putting in. And if you're putting in above average teams, you're basically giving yourself, let's say a 60% chance at, at landing that first place um, just by loading up in, you know, all three entries in one contest. So the math says, you know, throw it all into one contest, you optimize your chance of winning one seat. Um, the upside side of things is to spread it out across all three. And I think it will vary from week to week, depending on how much you like your main roster, how comfortable you feel with it. Uh, any thoughts on Connor's usage last week being a partial FU to Le'Veon Bell? How possible do you think it is that his snap rate goes down to about 70% with Ridley and Samuels mixing in a bit more? I would think the chances of that are below 1%. Uh, Ridley is not very good. I say that as somebody who's watched him since he was a rookie um, as a lifelong Patriots fan, and he's just not a great running back. Um, Samuels is still really raw. I believe he was actually an inactive, a healthy scratch last week. Um, this is what this offense does. They've done it with Fitzgerald Toussaint, and they did it with a 32- or 33-year-old D'Angelo Williams. Like They're going to give all the touches to one guy. Um, I should have trusted it last week. I made a huge mistake by not playing Connor on my main team. Thankfully, it didn't, uh, it didn't hurt me because everybody else did great. But, yeah, I mean, it, it just is a place where you just pay for 
uh, Steelers running back. If they're under 8,500, like it's just a, a lock play. 8,500 on DraftKings, uh, under 9K on FanDuel. I think you just lock them in no matter what. So until the price gets up to there, you don't even question it. Uh, that's how I would handle Connor. I would think it's a very slim chance that uh, he doesn't get all the touches uh, unless he gets hurt. All right, last two questions. I really like these. Um, when you make practice rosters, do you use a lineup builder or by hand? Actually, Jay, that's Jay Nelson asked that. I'm going to answer that last. Um, so before that, uh, Sports Battle SB coming back again with, do you think it is a mistake to not play Coleman on your main roster? Comes down to Gurley Pettis or Coleman high-priced wide receiver. Um, made the mistake of fading Connor last week and worried that fading Coleman is the same thing as he's talented and going to get 18 to 25 touches. So I think it's interesting that the uh, Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman combined combined to average 49 rushing yards a game last year against the Panthers. Um, this Panthers run defense is good. I know Thomas Davis is out. That makes him a little less good. But this isn't like the way that Steve Sarkeesian uses these running backs is not the way Shanahan used them. It's not like they're each getting five catches a game. If they combine for five catches, it's a miracle. So I think with Tevin Coleman, you're looking at a floor of three catches for 30 yards and then 50 rushing yards. So if that's the case, that's 11 points at 5,300. You're looking at a ceiling of, I would think, like a realistic ceiling. And so I always do my floor and ceiling projections for myself on like an 80-20 basis. It's like 20% of the time, what's the worst case? You know, 80% of the time, what's the best case? So I'm not getting up into like Tevin Coleman breaks off a long run and goes for 160 yards. Like the 80% the best case, is probably 90 rushing yards and five for 50 through the air. So we're looking at 19 points and give them a touchdown. So 25 points. Um, that would be like the, the 80% best case. At 5,300, like an 11 point to 25 point range isn't something I'm, I'm terrified of fading. If we're talking about uh, FanDuel, you take away a point and a half on that lower end and, and two and a half points on the higher end. Like, that's not going to kill your roster to not have him. So my thing is I like Coleman this week, um, but I think that the salary, if you go Doyle and the flex, um, or if you go even down to James White, I think that salary actually makes a, a pretty big difference in what you can do. So in, like, just a micro sense, Coleman as a play, I like him. I think that he's underpriced at 5300 um, But I think that, there are roster constructions without him that make sense. So for me, I will feel comfortable going with a roster construction that doesn't have him. Um, I do think he has a good game. I think he's a good piece on a roster, um, just not a must-have this week. Uh, now back to Jay's question. When you uh, build practice rosters, which I, I talk about a lot, I usually build 80 to 90 rosters each week. When I played with a smaller bankroll back in the day, I – these teams would do nothing. They would just sit there. Um, I actually would like my primary play was the one K tournament each week. And I might put in only, you know, two K in entries and the one K would be like the one K tournament and cash games. And I wouldn't even play any other tournaments just because I do think that those small field, like the higher dollars you can get up into and the smaller the field, um, 
the greater your chances of just like smashing your bankroll, like taking your bankroll to the next level, smashing with bankroll, not smashing your bankroll. Um, but really swelling your bankroll is those higher dollar ones. Obviously you don't want to stretch yourself. If you have a bankroll of 2000, you, you don't want to go play the one K tournament. Um, but yeah, so nowadays I actually take those 70 practice teams and throw them into the Millie maker. Um, just because, you know, you don't want to have all these teams that you put in thought and time into and, um, and miss out on that opportunity if one of them goes off. Um, I think last year I lost like 2K in the Millie Maker throughout the course of the season. So uh, given like the amount I put in, it's, it's pretty close to break even. If you're doing that and building really good rosters, um, obviously the chances of winning first place are slim as well. And that can bleed out money each year. But uh, I, I do think it's worth it to do that. Um, if you're building a bunch of practice rosters, to throw them all into something, whether it's the 25-cent tourney or the $1 tourney and $5 tourney, um, just something where you are getting those teams in play. Um, but how do I build them? I build them all by hand. And the reason is, you know, people always want to – people have asked about having a Slack chat, for example, on one-week season, which – um, to clarify, the reason we don't have it, it's actually deceptively expensive. Um, you have to pay per user and we have to pay for moderation and all that. And with what we charged this year for the site, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and what we spent on the site this year. Uh, but the reason that people want to have that Slack chat is because they want to have conversations about players. They want to share their thoughts and let other people share their thoughts and, and incorporate these different things. I think it's really important to actually get in the habit of doing that on your own. So when I build practice rosters, I am looking at Melvin Gordon, for example, and I'm looking and say, all right, what, what's his range of outcomes here? What are his chances of failing? What are his chances of, of, cater, of cratering a lineup I put him on? What are his chances of having a huge game? Um, you know, what are the defenses for and against him? Then you're looking at other guys in that same price range. I want to have that same conversation with myself about Christian McCaffrey. Uh, what do I like about him? What do I dislike about him? Um, you know, who do I like more between Gordon and McCaffrey? And so then you kind of narrow down that price range. And, then you, and it's not like a scientific method for me of, all right, I'm going to this price range at this position. But it's just as you build different rosters by hand, um, I do it in the, in the app on FanDuel and DraftKings, you have these conversations with yourself and try to figure out who the best plays are um, and figure out what you like about a player, what you dislike, what their range of outcomes is. And um, I, I think that something's really lost when you do the lineup builder approach. So the flip side of that is what I talked about earlier. There are guys like Osimo, guys like Eric Crane, who can look at, um, you know, just a ton of different ways that things could happen, a ton of ways to put, 150 lineups together. Uh, it's a very scientific approach, engineering mind approach. Um, so if that is your strength, um, and, and I'm not, I, I don't um, pretend to know exactly what the process is for these guys either. But, um, you know, obviously there is something different that, that they're going to do for that approach than what we are going to do for trying to build, you know, optimized lineups and a smaller group of optimized lineups. Um, I do also want to note uh, in case he listens, although he's big time, so probably won't listen, but uh, in, in case Crane is listening to this, um, 
it's worth noting that Crane actually, we've talked about this before. We did a Roto Academy course about this. Um, or I guess it was a, maybe it was a written course. I don't remember if we recorded or not. Anyhow, um, Crane is, is a proponent of finding the best plays. There was a conversation about this on Twitter this last week. And Crane, you know, basically if he's building 150 lineups, it would be like he's building eight lineups. Um, I mean, that's just a number that I'm pulling out of, out of thin air. But, you know, basically like I'm going to build eight lineups that I love and then variations on all of them. So you're still trying to uh, get down to what you think are really good plays. You're not just throwing darts and guessing with 150 lineups. Uh, that is how people lose money really quickly. Uh, but if you're going with this approach of trying to build bankroll through smaller field stuff, single entry stuff, instead of through the lottery field stuff, um, it makes a lot of sense to build things by hand. And I think you'll really lose something if you, if you use a lineup builder because you're not giving yourself room for this creativity of finding things um, that just make a lot of sense from a floor and ceiling perspective and that other people are going to miss out on. Obviously, um, you know, one of the marquee examples that I go back to is the cheat code with Isaiah Crowell and Duke Johnson together at the cost of a single high-priced running back. And it was like you could lock in a floor of 24 points and a ceiling of 40 um, on a week when I didn't like any of the high-priced running backs. And it was like, look, you lose a roster spot, but those guaranteed points are so good. This week, uh, you know, again, it's like the Juju, A.B., Connor thing. And I think that when you're building with a lineup builder, you remove the opportunity to – outthink others essentially you remove the opportunity to outmaneuver your competition um, and put together this puzzle in a way that gives you more floor and ceiling than most other people will have um, closing with that because i think it's really important i actually have no idea it's been a whirlwind of a day um, it's past midnight i haven't eaten in hours i'm in vegas I'm not at my desk um, so i have no idea how long this podcast actually was might have been like an hour and a half, but uh, you know, hopefully you sped up the playtime and got some really good info. I wanted to close with that one and make sure we got to everything. Uh, so with that, I'm going to go eat my burger, put together the player grid for you guys, and um, try to get some sleep before speaking at this thing tomorrow. Um, thanks for hanging out. Really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, I think it's really cool. The uh, numbers we had on this podcast last week, I don't remember what it was, but it was over a couple thousand, which is a lot of people in my mind, you know, that are willing to listen to what's mostly strategy talk um, on a Saturday and just me talking. Um, so apologize if my mind is a bit scrambled in spots, been a crazy couple months, but I think we got some really good stuff out there. And uh, yeah, I will see you uh, on the player grid. I'll see you uh, obviously back on the site next week and I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.